Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Heartland Alliance International's Marjorie Kovler Center helps immigrants recover from politically sanctioned torture and leave lives without fear in the United States. Established 30 years ago, it was one of the first torture treatment centers in the country. The Kovler Center assists 350 people a year, and there's always a waiting list. With me to talk about the Kovler Center is Mario Gonzalez, Senior Director at the Heartland Alliance International's Marjorie Kovler Center. I've known Mario for about 30 years, as long as the Kovler (laughs) Center has been around. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Also with us is Maimo Kabwe. She is a torture survivor from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Thanks for for joining us, Maimo. Thank you. And uh, with us is Cerrito Sandosham. She is the executive director of the Heartland Alliance International. And um, Sarita, I wanted to ask first about Heartland Alliance International. A lot of people may be familiar with Heartland Alliance as a poverty-fighting organization in Chicago, but a little less familiar with Heartland Alliance International branch. Uh, What is the full branch? So um, thank you, Jerome. Um, We are the global arm of Heartland Alliance. Um, Heartland Alliance International has been around for, you know, if I think about the COVLA, it's been around for as long as COVLA because COVLA is one of our longest standing programs. We work on human rights violations here in Chicago through COVLA with survivors of torture, but we're also working in Latin America, the Middle East, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And the folks that we work with are are generally people whose, viola- whose human rights have been violated, um, and they're marginalized. Um, they are suffering from conflict, uh, political oppression. They are abused because of their sexual orientation. Um, and we have been able to provide services through mental health support and also access to justice to several thousands of people. Now, I know you've been uh, active in Iraqi Kurdistan for many years and many other places in the globe. There's Latin America. You're partnering with organizations from uh, the Nordic countries. There's all sorts of things you do. Yes, um, and I'm glad that you mentioned Kurdistan because this actually links to the Kovla Center, which is providing mental health support to survivors of torture. And one of the things that we set up in Iraq, and we've been in the, we've been there since 2004, was the first torture treatment center, which continues to exist, called Wuchan. Um, the other piece that you're mentioning is that we actually work in partnership with organizations in countries like Colombia, providing mental health support, but also training and building the capacity of people whose uh, rights have been violated, and they come from the community. So we're supporting them in helping them uh, become um, community health workers around providing mental health support, Um, and that's an important piece of our work. And we're partnering with local organizations to ensure that the work that we're doing is sustainable. Mario Gonzalez, um, tell me what's new at the Kovler Center. How are things going? Well, we are very proud of uh, the new developments in the Kovler Center, um, especially the part that is related to the child program, the child uh, trauma program. So we are providing services to community and uh, immigrants that are, have usually no access to other services that have suffered different types of trauma. It's more generalized than the exclusive population of adults that in the past we were serving that uh, focus in the treatment of torture. So this, this population have suffered different uh, types of trauma by uh, the gangs in Latin America, 
uh, by marginalization, se several types. I imagine this is, would be a long-standing goal of the organization to be able to help this population of young people who were probably not served at all for their trauma and had plenty. And you would see the children of uh, people you're working with, and they had plenty of trauma. Yeah, it, it is how it started. All the secondary survivors were the first ones that we started to serve, and it uh, just led us to try to develop this uh, part, this component of the program that is specialized in the treatment of trauma for children. Um, and Maimo Kabwe is here, a torture survivor from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Thanks very much for joining us. Could you share a little about yourself and how you came to this country? Well, I was persecuted back home in Congo, and uh, I was tortured. I was forced to leave my country, which I didn't want because I love very much my country, but I didn't have a choice. I had to leave my country. That is how I happened to be here in America. What part of Congo were you from? Uh, the Congo, Kinshasa, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And um, when you came to this country, did you think that something like the Kovler Center even existed? No, I didn't think that something like Kovler existed because uh, when I came, I didn't know anybody and uh, I didn't know even know the language very well because I only knew how to write, but I couldn't speak. So it was very limited for me to even though get help. It was really hard. Uh, I had to go to very hard process to get through Kovler. And then when I found Kovler... It was a relief. I felt home when I first walked into Kovler Center. And the first person I met was Mario. I felt like I met my dad because he gave me hope. I, I, because I lost hope already and uh, my life didn't mean anything. He's the man who gave me hope and uh, he, he told me one thing I always remember. He says, things will be okay. You have a bright future, and we will help you. We will always be with you no matter what. One of the things that um, helped me understand the place that a torture survivor is in, somebody said, well, there are people who are stuck. They're stuck, and you got to get them unstuck. You got to pop that hope out there and uh, get them to reignite and rejoin um, society. Yes, Kovler has so many programs. Uh, they, are, they are therapists. They are, uh, there are so many activities that Kovler assigned to us as uh, survivors because we live in fear. And Kovler want to make this place very peaceful and safe for us. So Kovler work, work with individual to to help us find our place in the society and uh, feel more safe and welcoming in America. Did you have a favorite program? And, and Kovler offers a full range of social services. It helps with a lot of things, but there's fun things, um, cooking, uh, well, group cooking. There's all sorts of fun things that go on. Yes, I like the cooking group because in the cooking group, we, al we always have different people from different countries and we learn different uh, 
culture every time, even though I'm from another country, but uh, it's always a joy to join people from the other country and taste their food because their food are so delicious. <laughs> uh, did you get to cook food from Congo one time? Yes, I've done that. And did you persuade anybody that it's the best food? Of course, yes, I have to. <laughs> uh, and Maimo Kabwe is a torture survivor from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, we're talking about some of the work of the Kovler Center. And I wanted to bring up something that's in the news right now. President Trump has introduced some changes to um, asylum-seeking laws that are in the United States. And uh, they're largely going to restrict the number of asylum seekers and make it more difficult. Um, Sarita, what do you think uh, – this is just another step in restricting all sorts of forms of immigration and travel that the, the Trump administration has done. Uh, how will this affect you guys specifically? Well, you know, you just heard my most story. And there are more people uh, at our borders who are trying to seek asylum in the United States. And it is really going to be hard for them to know about the Kovla Center because of these sanctions, right? And I think the other piece around this is just recognizing that it's a breach of humanitarian law. Uh, and for a country that espouses itself to be a human rights leader, uh, it really calls it into question. So we think that this is problematic. It's going to have an impact on the people that we serve. And there's going to be a great deal of fear. And we're really sorry that this is currently um, the, the thought process. And the, the proposal says that they're going to charge money for asylum seeking and they're going to not allow the asylum seekers to work while they're in this country, which will <laughs> inhibit them from paying the, the bill they want them to pay, obviously, uh, and lots of other bills. Mario? Well, uh, you know, this is one of the most difficult situations that we could see in this uh, new reality, that people that uh, have to leave their countries not by choice, they are forced to leave everything behind. So resources is nothing that they will have. If you prevent somebody from working because work permits will be restricted, and uh, they have no resources really, how they will afford the payments that uh, supposedly be, will be charged. So this is something very problematic. We struggle in the services that we provide at the Cobbler Center go in three directions, that is the mental health, the physical health, and psychosocial support. But it won't be possible if the people that receive the services is struggling just to survive. And, uh, and it's something that could last for years. So the process could be like three, four years right now. And uh, it's something that we are not anticipating is going to be reduced you know, dramatically. So how somebody is going to survive for years without an income and without uh, in, any other uh, support, economic support? This, this is very problematic. Besides the fear that it's generated by all these uh, policies that are uh, really aggressive in a way to disencourage people to apply for asylum and stay here. Now, I know other um, refugee agencies in the city are facing declining numbers, and you've always had a waiting list at Kovler. Uh, are, are you guys facing declining numbers of people too? Well, not really. Um, the decline that we have observed in other agencies are uh, based on the number of refugees that are permitted to come into the country. So th that's a decline. 
but the asylum seekers are uh, really There's coming. They find a, a way to <laughs> come, and they, they keep coming. And so this is uh, the population that we serve mainly. But we, see, we serve also survivors that are part of the refugee community. And, you know, just to add to this, I mean, and you know this, Jerome, is that we've been working every year with at least 400 um, survivors of torture. And we take a long view. So it's not, you know, it's not immediate in terms of the work that we do with them, right? We we look Mm -hmm. at it holistically. We're looking at the whole person to ensure that their community is also engaged, their families are also engaged. Um, And that's a really important um, point about why Kovla exists and has existed for the last 30 years. And given the current situation in the world, will continue to exist. And um, what Kovla is doing, you're you're treating people for years sometimes, for months. Mm -hmm. There is no time limit. You you treat people until until they're better. They're ready. <laughs> yes. Ready. Yeah, and, and this is uh, some of the encouraging parts of this work because what we see is the dramatic change that people make in their lives, the incredible resiliency that they have, and how they become really productive uh, individuals in this society. And Maimo is one a big example for us, very encouraging. She's uh, getting her first apartment. She was sharing with me today, and uh, she bought her car, she's finishing school, and it's, it's very, she's becoming a very productive human being in this society. So I, I think we should see that aspect, you know, that uh, so people will come in under this process if uh, provided with a very limited support. They are able to do dramatic changes and dramatic contributions to society. That's great. Maima, where are you going to school? I'm going to Octon. Oakton Community College. College. That's terrific. And uh, you're going to specialize in something? Yes, I'm going to specialize in anesthesia. Ah, anesthesiology. Yes. Oh, very good. That's 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 a tricky business. That's serious. <laughs> yes, I do not want people to feel the pain that I've I've felt. That is a great way to look at it. <laughs> yes. We're talking with Maimo Kabwe, a torture survivor from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mario Gonzalez, uh, the senior director at the Kovler Center, and Sarita Sandosham. She is the executive director of Heartland Alliance International. And one of the things that's coming up, uh, a really big thing that you're doing, you're having a uh, center of power healing uh, event. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your guest speaker, Sarita, is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yes. So our keynote speaker for the Power of Healing benefit is Hillary Rodham Clinton. And this benefit is about lifting um, the visibility of the work that we have been doing with survivors of torture. We are giving the award to an amazing philanthropist who was a founder of Kovla, um, Peter Kovla. And he himself embodies what is all great about philanthropy, which is the love of humanity. And he really believed that in in setting up Kovla, we would actually be able to help people like Maimo um, and many others. Um, And Hillary Rodham Clinton is speaking at our benefit. And she's going to talk about what we care about, which is human rights and how we need to defend our human rights, not only here in the United States, but also globally. And we're very excited and we want to invite everyone to attend and become part of our community of human rights defenders. And uh, if I can just say, 
um, go to our website, Heartland Alliance International, and it will pull up um, the piece that will allow you to buy tickets um, and attend on May 14th from 6 to 9 p.m. MIMO. And many of our um, survivors of torture will be there, as will be others who have been working on Heartland Alliance, the whole family, plus Heartland Alliance International. So the event is on Tuesday, May 18th at the no, Palmer... No, no, sorry, May 14th. May 14th, I'm yes. sorry, uh, at the Palmer House Correct. on uh, right there on Monroe Street. And uh, every year someone is awarded the uh, Robert Kirshner Award, and uh, he was a terrific uh, person from the University of Chicago, a... a, uh, a what do you call him, Mario? The coroner. He was coroner. He was like well, he was a medical med- examiner, right. and a human rights activist. Um, and he you was know, active in Bosnia and El exactly. Salvador, everywhere, and yes. did a lot of forensics that were pioneering in the field. And and really right. volunteer too, so right? That's, that's, that's <laughs> volunteer, absolutely, yeah. And uh, so, and this year, you're giving the, that award, the Kirshner Award, to Peter Kovler, who's uh, the Marjorie Kovler Center is named after his mother, Mario. Yes. So Peter Kovler started this effort 33 years ago, and uh, he decided to support us, and uh, he, he ventured a lot of in this in this uh, project, and he has been so, so supportive and committed, so he has helped us. Without him, this center wouldn't exist, and um, so I think this is a minimum recognition that we could have for him to make him the recipient of this award that Robert Krishner was an inspiration for all of us. He taught us and many of our physicians to become forensic experts. And uh, besides of his international work, I think uh, it's a very well-deserved recognition to Peter to have uh, the award that was named after um, Robert Krishner. Well, it sounds very exciting, and I hope people will go and see the uh, Kovler Center Power of Healing uh, benefit, and it is on Tuesday, May 14th at 6 o'clock at the Palmer House, and you can go to the Heartland Alliance International website and get more information there, and um, it's been great talking with you, and good luck with the benefit on the 14th, and nice to see you, Mario Gonzalez and Sarita Sandershan, and thanks very much for joining us, Maimo Kabwe, a torture survivor from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Thank you very much, all of you. Thank you Thank very you. much we for having us. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we will have a conversation about Cuban, uh, the Cuba situation and some of the uh, everyday situations that Cubans face uh, when they're trying to eat and get along. So stay tuned for that. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The hybrid documentary, The Unique Story of Unlucky Juan, looks at the Cuban economy from an everyman perspective. It's the latest installment in the Cuban Visions film series at the Athenaeum Theater. The series introduces Chicagoans to works by rarely screened Cuban filmmakers. Alexandra Halkin is a filmmaker and director of the America's Media Initiative, and she programmed the Cuban Visions film series, and we've been chatting with her about the bi-monthly series that runs through November. Good to see you, Alex. Hi, Jerome. Thanks for having me back. Tell us a little bit about the unique story of Unlucky Juan. The unique story of Unlucky Juan 
is a hybrid documentary in that it uses a fictional character, Juan, who as kind of the jumping off point to talk about the Cuban economy. Juan only receives a salary in Cuban pesos. And so what the film does is look at how Juan lives on a monthly salary of Cuban pesos. All right. So from what I can tell, it's really difficult to do. Yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) It's difficult to do because a lot of things that people need to buy every day are not necessarily available in Cuban pesos. You have to buy them in the convertible peso, which is pegged to the dollar. Average Cubans who receive a Cuban peso salary, I think it's between $24 or $30. And so when they have to go and buy things in the convertible peso, it can be a lot more money than what they're accustomed to paying for. And you were just in Cuba in April. I was in Cuba at the Young Directors Film Festival. It's called the Muestro Joven. You know, things are difficult there. There is definitely problems with access to food. Cuba imports a large amount of food. Just getting milk or bread is complicated right now, and that has to do with trade relationships with Brazil, with Venezuela, etc., One of the great things about the Cuban Vision film series is you have a big after-talk at the end. And this time, your guest is Harold Cardenas. He is chief editor at La Joven Cuba. It's an alternative media company, and he's on the line with us now. Thanks for joining us, Harold. Hi, Jerome. Thank you for having me. How would you describe what's going on? What do you think of the film? What's your reaction to how it plays itself out there? Well, I was watching the film, and I was really feeling a lot of empathy with the main character, the story of Unlucky Juan was my story not long ago, so it's pretty much the story of many, many Cubans today. Well, I hear a lot about people getting a hold of dollar dollars and people sending money to Cuba, and you've got to have some way of getting onto the black market to kind of get along and get allotment of pesos. What happens? Well, in Cuba, you will have a very extended black market. And that, of course, creates every kind of crisis that you can imagine and creates a lot of inequality. The main trouble that everyday Cubans have is the low salaries that Alexandra was talking about. These low salaries creates a, a level of dependency on the subsidies of the government and affects pretty much the purchasing capability of the citizens. So you have a country that has been living in crisis for a long time. I remember in 2008, when the crisis of the international market started, uh, the normal trope in Cuba was that it's not a big surprise for us because we've been in a crisis our whole life. So that's how everyday life in Cuba is. Now, how would you describe how people want to change the situation? Is there any kind of hope that there is kind of a different economy in the horizon. We hear about uh, different privatization efforts that have been going on in Cuba. Does that end up making a difference for people? Of course. The biggest change that we've seen in the last decades in Cuba has been the process of normalization of relations with the United States under President Obama. When President Obama decided to take that step, we saw the improvement of uh, civil society in Cuba, but most of all, we saw the surge of a private sector. And we saw a private sector that was booming, and many, many Cubans were having hope. And that hope for my generation, for example, was a very important thing, because my generation for a long time has been deciding to migrate from Cuba because of the lack of opportunities. And for the first time, we had the opportunity to stay. Let's make our lives with our families. 
And that all stopped with President Trump when normalization was ended. So that's the biggest possibilities we've had in changing our everyday crisis in the last decades. And I'm very hopeful that we can have that again. One thing that has definitely affected organizing the Cuban Visions film series is that effectively the U.S. Embassy in Havana is closed. So it's impossible to get visas for Cubans unless they go to a third country. And in fact, the Trump administration just stopped the five-year multiple entry visas. Now Cubans can only get three-month visas. And even before all of this happened, it took about three months to get a visa. So unless you have a lot of lead time and you can get to a third country, it's very difficult difficult to bring Cubans to the United States right now. Harold, you were saying that there were things during the Obama administration, the loosening up of the economy that was making people hopeful and that made people want to stay. What kind of things were going on there? What kind of uh, economic activity are you talking about? I think that the most important thing that happened was the recognition of the private sector. Such a big recognition that the new constitution in Cuba acknowledges the existence of private sector. And the new president in Cuba also promotes a very healthy relationship with the private sector. Of course, there are some prejudices still among the political elite of the country, but pretty much that changed everything. The normalization changed the perceptions that Cubans had. Um, it's impossible to have a good relation with the U.S.? No, it's not impossible. It's really possible. And Cubans were very optimistic. And private businesses were booming. You had private restaurants. You had Every kind of business that you can imagine in Havana mostly happening. And American tourism was having a big impact, for example, in Havana. So that was starting to push and starting to change the rest of the economy. And when we were starting to see the results of that, all that ended. I'm talking with Harold Cardenas. He's chief editor at La Joven Cuba, an alternative media company. And we're talking about the economy in Cuba. It is the subject of the latest installment of the Cuban Vision film series at the Athenaeum Theater. They're showing the hybrid documentary, The Unique Story of Unlucky Juan, which looks at the Cuban economy from an everyman perspective. I wanted to ask a question about what's going on now with the Trump administration uh, the Trump administration is very interested in what's happening in Venezuela and wants to punish Cuba for what's happening in Venezuela. And they instituted a part of the Helms-Burton Act recently that allows Americans to file a lawsuit over property confiscated in 1959. Um, you know, that sounds like ancient history to us and kind of an obscure, mean thing to do. But what does it mean to people in Cuba, Harold? Uh, exactly as you describe it. The U.S. is currently turning back the clock on U.S.-Cuban relations. It's limiting travel. It's denying the remittances that were sent to Cuba. It's sabotaging a baseball deal. It's applying stronger sanctions on foreign companies. And the argument that it's all about Venezuela is simply not true. Uh, John Bolton has been after Cuba since the Bush administration. But Venezuela right now is the best pretext they have to justify this. Yeah, they are actually activating Title III of the Helms-Burton Act. This allows U.S. citizens to file lawsuits in the United States against the foreign companies that have business in Cuba with properties that were confiscated during the revolution. Uh, one a good example of this is the airport. The airport of Havana is one of these properties. So I would like to add two things about this. First, not many people know that the nationalizations in Cuba occur under international law. 
the settlement was offered that wasn't accepted in the United States. And the second thing that maybe we should know is that it's important to do a comparison. Why the United States doesn't file a lawsuit on the properties that were seized in the Mexican Revolution? Why it prefers to do it uh, specifically with Cuba? The ideological aspects of this new policy towards Cuba is, for me, is just terrible because these measures are just cruel, cruel with the Cuban people. Those are the ones that are going to pay the price of everything that is happening during the Trump administration. How did the Cuban people end up paying a price from something like this 1959 revolutionary confiscation punishment? Um, this is an escalation of tensions that are forcing the Cuban people to effect a regime change in Havana, but it's something that it won't happen. Anybody that knows how Cuba works, um, the sources of legitimacy that the government has and how the domestic dynamics is, how the dissident movements operate, knows that that's not going to happen, even less before 2020. So that's simply not going to work. What is, what is already happening is that the private sector today is not able to come to the United States to get many of the things that they were buying to their businesses, and now they cannot have that. Now the private sector doesn't have a lot of the support and a lot of the money that was being sent from the United States to Cuba to have their business, now they cannot have that either. Um, when you crack down on American tourism, you're also affecting many, many Cubans that depend on that because the American tourists, they don't go to the government hotels. They go to the houses, to Airbnbs, to the houses of the Cuban people. And those are the ones that are paying the price today. So it is just cruel. It's cruel with the people that are going to pay for this. When Bolton talks about a troika of tyranny, I also think the real troika is Florida, Texas, and California. Because it's all about the boats. It's about the boats of the conservative Latinos that are living in the U.S. And they are trying to make this policy to win the boats. You know, I was reading about one of the larger things that was nationalized in Cuba. And, you know, I don't have any knowledge of what was nationalized, really. But one of them was a nickel mine, and it was owned by Freeport McMoran, the gigantic global mining conglomerate. So Freeport McMoran would get to sue and... Uh, the current people who are mining that mine is a Canadian firm, Share It. Uh, their CEO can't travel to the United States. There's all this weirdness between this Canadian mining company and the United States. And the U.S. thinks this mining company owns our gigantic mining company something. Um, what does that say to you? It almost seems like a gigantic uh, mining company bickering. Harold, uh, what is this? Exactly, Joe. I'm going to give you the closest example that I have to me personally. Three blocks away from my house, there is a, a hotel. This hotel is being claimed now by an American family because it was one of the hotels that was seized during the revolution. Well, the owners of this hotel were the Mayor Lansky family of the mob in the United States. <laughs> so you have the family of the, the mobsters claiming back a property that now belongs to the public. They're claiming back that kind of property. Many people forget that many of those properties that were seized and that were nationalized were properties that were owned by the families and the elite of the dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista. So you will have a Latin American dictator, and we will have a revolution that nationalizes many of those properties, some of these properties, not everything. But many of those properties that have been claimed today used to belong to the political class and the political elite in, during the dictatorship. I don't think the United States should be in the business of protecting the rights of elite dictatorships. 
I'm talking with Harold Cardenas. He's chief editor of La Joven Cuba. It's an alternative media company. And also Alex Halkin is here, a filmmaker and director of the America's Media Initiative. She programmed the Cuban Vision film series, and they're talking about the Cuban economy and showing the film The Unique Story of Unlucky Juan, which looks at the Cuban economy. And uh, that's taking place on Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Athenaeum Theater. Now, you know, it almost seems like um, the Cuban economy is going to be held up by the Trump administration. Like there's just not going to be a lot of economic growth because of the punitive measures of the Trump administration. And it will force them on Canadian companies, uh, other countries. They're going to go after anybody who wants to invest. Is that about the size of things, Harold? Exactly. Uh, It's a very depressing time for everybody who was involved or supported or had their hopes on the normalization before. I was talking with an American diplomat the other day, and he was telling me, wow, I think we're going to have to start from the beginning in the future. And I was telling him, no, we don't have to start from the beginning because we already know how to do it. What we have to do is to make a change in policy. And if we have to make a change in policy in the White House, well, that's up to the American people. Uh, The American people is the one that has to decide what kind of president wants and what kind of policies is it going to support. And regarding Cuba, for me, the real troika of tyranny for the Cuban people today are Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, and John Bolton. I was reading a statement by Elliot Engel, the chairman of the House Committee on Foreign Affairs, about the changes to policy on Cuba. And he said, I've seen firsthand the impact that U.S. travel to Cuba has in supporting the country's budding private sector. The very people who are struggling to survive in the difficult economic environment created by the Cuban regime, these independent entrepreneurs represent the country's future. And today, President Trump has chosen to turn his back on them. Limiting remittances to struggling human families deprives them of the resources they need to survive. This is quite simply inhumane. I urge President Trump to return to smart policies aimed at supporting the Cuban people rather than causing further harm to these individuals. That's uh, Elliot Engel from the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the chair there. So I guess that sounds pretty familiar to you, Harold. Exactly. I totally agree with that. It's not fair that 11 million people pay the price of domestic politics in states like Florida or others. It's just not fair. It shouldn't be like that, but it's the world we're living in. Alex, the film series runs through November, and this time you're focused on the economy in Cuba. What's coming up in this bi-monthly series that you've got coming down? After the screening this Sunday, we've got a screening in July about women in film in Cuba. Um, That's in mid-July. In October, we have an animation series called Revolutionary Aspirations, which takes the history of animation post-revolution in Cuba that illustrates both the process of the revolution and also development of animation in Cuba. And then the last film is in November, beginning of November, called The Personal is Political, and it's a beautiful documentary um, by Marcel Beltran. Do you have a website where people can get more information? Yes, you can go to americasmediainitiative.org or one of the partners in the screening series is Full Spectrum Features, and you can go also to their website. All right. This Sunday at 2 o'clock, the unique story of Unlucky Juan at the Athenaeum Theater at 2 o'clock. And Harold Cardenas will be there, the chief editor of La Joven Cuba, an alternative media company. Thanks a lot for joining us, Harold. And thanks a lot for joining us, Alexandra. Thanks for having us. Thanks to you. 
Coming up after the break, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll talk with one of the world's great oud players, Rahim Al-Haj. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Global Notes, our look at international music with Worldview contributor Catalina Maria Johnson, the host and producer of Beat Latino on Vocalo, and a music and culture writer. Great to see you, Catalina. Hey, Jerome. Great to be here. Wonderful. I Now, today, I'm really pleased that we have one of the world's great oud players with us. Absolutely. One of the master oud players was like admitted to you know, something like the equivalent of a conservatory at 13 years of age. Truly one of the great artists of the oud, Rahim Al-Hajj. Rahim Al-Hajj is on the line with us. Uh, great to meet you. Thanks for joining uh, us. Oh, pleasure uh, to meet you, too. And uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I, you know, you're originally from Iraq. You've been here since 2000 in the United States. Uh, well, could you tell people a little about your story and, and how you came to the U.S.? And um, you were this amazing prodigy. Um, what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I actually I, I fled Iraq in 1991 after the first Gulf War uh, due to my um, – uh, activism against Saddam regime during that time. And uh, I went to Jordan and then Syria. When Syria, there is no diplomatic relationship between Syria and Iraq during that time. So um, it was really, uh, that's it. That means I am out of my country and I cannot return back. So in 2000, I came to United States as a political asylum. And uh, I came to, to this country with oud and a lot of books and a lot of paintings. And that's all I have, basically. And uh, uh, it's just like a story. It's been, it's been really known in, in the United States. It's called the McDonald's story. They call it New York Times, <laughs> which, is, uh, which is like when I came here, like I said, so they give me $60 as a refugee. And, uh, and then they give me one month for free. <clears throat> rent and uh, after one month there is a, a case worker who is actually uh, Cuban and he came to me and he said hey we have a great news for you and uh, we have you we, we, we do have a job for you and I said sure I didn't speak English that time really I thought I was speaking English but anyway so he said uh, well uh, we have you a job so what kind of job he said in McDonald, and I said, "So, which kind of conservatory is that? They teach Western classical music or <laughs> Eastern classical music?" And and he smiled to me and he said, "No, no, um, it's a McDonald." I said, "Yeah, yeah, I, I know McDonald." So, so basically, they they teach just Western classical music because I'm a violinist. I'm I'm classically trained as a violinist, and he smiled again and. And he said, no, no, it's not the conservatory. Uh, actually, it's as a restaurant. And I said, but I don't play a restaurant. So, <laughs> 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 and Rahim, well, actually, yeah, yes. 
I've heard also that the, a funny uh, anecdote. Tell us about how you ended up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's another kind of... Uh, yeah. Kind of, the, <laughs> this is another story that's like uh, my life here in the United States, story after another story. Uh, but this one actually, uh, when I came to the United States, they, the, the United Nations chose New Mexico for me as a home for two reasons. The first reason, you know, I'm a musician, interested in art because my happy is to write about art. I critique uh, art. And they told me that, you know, New Mexico, Santa Fe, and it's, just, it's a very big deal in, in, in art and in music. And the same time, the second reason was because the uh, the environment is like desert, like like Middle East. So, <laughs> so they put me in, in New Mexico. And it is, it's been a phenomenal, really, home. And I still call it home uh, with a lot. But it's of, hardly desert. Uh, Baghdad, Baghdad is hardly desert. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what they think. It's a Middle East. It's just, you know, just, just, just a desert, right? Um, they do not know that Iraq is like... You know the civil of the civilization, and 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 they have two huge rivers and Tigris and Euphrates and marsh, whatever. But that's how they capture the Middle East. It's just it's desert. I think they compare it to to Saudi Arabia or something like that. But uh, I have to be honest. Um, since I came to 2000, and this is uh, New Mexico, it's absolutely, truly is, is my home. And I, the first time, in fact, I was in Baghdad last month, and I was talking to my friend, and I said, you know, I think when I was in my home and with my friends and my family, and I missed New Mexico so much, and I felt, wow, this is, this is it. Because I believe nationality is, is not a choice. To home, it's, it's a choice. It's your choice. And when you choose a home, that's your choice. But you, you cannot choose your nationality. You know, your wow. parents brought you to this world. Wow. We're talking with Rahim Alhaj. He's one of the world's great oud players. He'll be in Chicago on Sunday at 3 o'clock at the Logan Center. And he's playing um, music from his album Letters from Iraq, which he did a couple of years ago. And we wanted to listen to a tune from Letters of, from Iraq. And uh, which one is this, Catalina? This is a Forbidden Attraction, I believe. That's a little bit of music from Letters from Iraq, and we're talking with uh, Rahim Alhaj, one of the world's great oud players. Uh, tell us about this album and why you, you know, it seems like it uh, percolated in you for a while. You've been here since 2000, and, and this album came out just a couple years ago. Uh, what was going on there? Right. Uh, this is actually a very important record uh, in my career, to be honest, for a lot of reasons. And because this... Uh this project came out after I visited my my family in 2015, and then uh, by accident, my uh, my nephew he called me. We were sitting. He said, "Rahim, I I am I, I wrote a letter to United States." I said, "What do you mean you wrote a letter to United States in English or in Arabic?" He said, "No, no, in Arabic." So he went there and he brought his his book note, and and I read the 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 
the letters, and I was in tears. He told his story uh, in these letters. Uh, you know, he's a disabled. He's uh, 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 that time he was a teenager, like 13 years old, and uh, I told him the story of this little boy who was a disabled, cannot walk straight, and he needs to have a haircut. And went to to the barber shop, and and after that, uh, waited for his line. And there is a car bombing near his the the barber shop, and then the, the the explosion happened for this car, and everybody ran except him. He cannot run like anybody else because he cannot walk normally. So he was watching all these horror and and inconceivable images of people, you know, parts. Flying on the air and car, and people screaming, and there's another one happened. So he tried to to collect his his um, strength to to be safe, and he stayed on the corner of uh, one wall. And he said, "This is it. I'm dying." So he said, "There is there is images of my mom and my dad and my sisters and brothers and and neighbors and what is I'm saying goodbye to them." And it was a phenomenal story. And I said. Is there anybody wrote these kind of letters? He said, "Oh yeah, yeah. There's my friend who, who wrote, but he went to another another uh, uh, area in Baghdad. So we went there. I, I find another letters, and one led to another. So I collect them. In fact, when I came back, I thought I am gonna basically kind of lecture about them in universities to tell them this is what the Iraqi people they've been living during that time of of war and horror and sectarian violence." But then I find myself really obligated to to torrent and I call it translation. To be honest, a translation and faithful translation to these stories I've been collecting eight to eight letters written by Iraqi women and children to United States. So I wrote it for Oud and Citring Quintet. And, and it's it's a, it's a real. In fact, when we do, uh, when I do a concert, we will project the letters to the people in wow. Russian Arabic. And there is a phenomenal, my childhood friend, a phenomenal artist who who made this series about each letters, and we can project it too uh, yeah. in the in the in the hall for each uh, letters. Uh, his name Riyad Lama, and he's a phenomenal uh, an artist, a visual artist. So that's actually it came then when Smithsonian uh, uh, they brought me for that, and then we put it. You know, Smithsonian one of the most prestigious record label in, in our in our time. Ibrahim Al-Hajj is, uh, we're talking about him, about his album Letters from Iraq. Let's listen to a little more. and letters from Iraq. He'll be here Sunday at the Logan Center at 3 p.m. Wow, that's breathtakingly beautiful. And if you can't make it for any reason, you can check out the images and the music as part of the CD. You'll see the that artist's images. Uh, Rahim, what a, what a masterpiece you've created. I'm oh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Actually, it's because I think because it's all real and there is no pretentiousness in it. It's, it's this project is about to tell the world there is some struggle 
up there and we need to face it and we need to talk about it and we need to do something about it. And that's our responsibility actually as a human being first, not just an artist. Every human being, he's responsible for this earth and everybody responsible for every single human being on this planet and we need to do something beautiful i call them i i've been all my life i've been struggling with that and i i'm fighting really hard i'm i'm a peace activist i'm not just a musician and composer i believe in in in, in uh, social justice i believe in peace and love and compassion and that we call it concept three kinds of peace and love and compassion i'm trying to tell the people could you please open your heart and open your eyes and and do something beautiful for the for the world and and to make this world better better place for another generation to come wow thank you how hard has it been to live in this country and get refuge in a place that at the same time while you were living here <coughs> you know declared you know invaded your country and occupied it uh your home country this this must have been and with your philosophy it it sounds like uh, uh just a lifetime of contradiction and pain absolutely that's thank you for that actually i've been having that's a phenomenal question actually <laughs> i think just because i mean it's really hard, and it was excruciating moment when when the war started here, actually, against my home because I wasn't, I didn't have any chance to talk to them. It was in two thousand three, and in fact, I have a concert in New York that time, and it came as a record. Actually, there's Stephen Feld, who is the most famous ethnomusicology in the world. His dear friend of mine, who was at the concert, is like two. Th- Two days, actually three days after the invasion, and I was in, in, uh, lecturing and performing at the Columbia University. He was a, uh, a professor there, and he recorded this 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 concert and uh, just uh, to give me a souvenir. And then it's coming like ridiculously painful, and it was really difficult for me to adjust and to grasp. That's that's the contradictory you called it uh, between my home. I know it's burning, and right. the same time, my 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 adopted home who is doing that aggression against my people. Maybe my mom's gonna be killed. Maybe my brother's gonna be my friend. And so, so I was really in very deep. Uh, uh, pain at that time. Well, uh, uh, Rahima, we are out of time. I thank you very much for joining us, and I sure look forward to you being here Sunday at the Logan Center at 3 p.m. and performing Letters from Iraq. Uh, thanks for everything, and thanks for thanks for being such a wonderful person. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Catalina Maria Johnson, thank you for another fine edition of Global Notes. Oh, we'll see you pleasure. soon. Yeah. I hope people follow you. You're off to the New Orleans Jazz Festival <laughs> on social media at Catalina Maria Maria J. You always entertain. Uh, thanks so much. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Mm-hmm.